It is a privilege to be able to introduce Dr. Vincent Baycoat and have him here with us tonight. It's a real gift. Um, this summer, I was at something called the Acton Institute, and uh, it's, a, it's a think tank, and they have a lot of classes, and I went to this one lecture that was the lecture that stands out as my favorite. It was a lecture on Abraham Kuyper by Dr. Baycoat. And in and, and that moment, I said, we got to get him here to First Wednesday. And so seven, eight months later, it has come to fruition. Um, let me give you a little bit about him. He's the Associate Pro Professor of Theology and the Director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Someone went to Wheaton, huh? Well done. Uh, he's the author of The Spirit in Public Theology, which I hold in my hands right now and will be selling in the back, which is a book about Abraham Kuyper. And he's contributed to um, a number of, of other books and a number of theological journals. He lives in the Chicago area with his family, and he has a book coming out soon that's called the political disciple. So would you go ahead and give him a hand as he comes up? Thank you for that welcome. I appreciate that very much. Who's the weedy? Oh, wow. So when? When? Uh, 06. 07. Really? I don't think I had either of you as a class a student, did I? Okay, all right. Okay. Well, it's great to have you there. Great to have all of you. Great to be here. Uh, great to not, great to be somewhere where it's above 30, as I said earlier today, uh, or twice above 30, shall we say. Um, so here, I'd like you to think about something for, for us to get started. Think about one of your heroes, okay? So take a second, think about it. All right, okay. Who wants to tell me who their hero is? Okay, who's your hero? Okay, okay, hey, all right. All right, so uh, why is Abraham Lincoln your hero? He's, uh, what, what makes him awesome? Okay, all right, so, so because, because he's a truth teller. Okay, all right, good, good. Somebody else can be telling me about a hero. Yes. Elon Musk. Elon Musk, okay, so because? Uh, he's a visionary, like count Yep, yep, so, so, so it's the fact that he's a visionary. That is the thing, right? Okay, one or two more people, tell me who, about a hero. Yes. My father. Your father, because? He's always supported these things. Okay, so his, his support, all right. Anybody over here? No one has a hero. <laughs> it reminds me of what a friend of mine in Europe said. He goes, we don't have heroes in Europe, especially after World War II. Uh, so, because everybody's suspicious of people with big ideas, you might get the Third Reich. <laughs> Which they did. Uh, so, here's the reason I asked that question. If you think about a person that's a hero, the person that is a hero is someone that you admire because of certain things that they do or certain things that they have done. And often what happens when someone is a hero, 
This has happened for me, so I'll speak for myself. If there's someone you really admire, somehow the thing that they do that makes them your hero, it kind of penetrates to the rest of their person. So that everything that they do, or everything about them, you think is fantastic. And the reason I'm saying that is, is that uh, a lot of times, uh, some of us have heroes, and there might be a moment when our heroes don't quite live up to certain things that we hoped they lived up to. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But before that, I'm going to talk about these two figures as, and why they're heroic for some people. So why do we have a heroic Martin Luther King and an heroic Abraham Kuyper? Well, King's a hero because of his leadership as part of the Civil Rights Movement. He's not the only leader. It's very important. There's no way he could do what he did all by himself. Okay? He was the figurehead. He was certainly one of the major spokespersons. And, of course, uh, we think about him as this person uh, with great abilities as a speaker, we think about him writing something like Letter from a Birmingham Jail, which was very, uh, if you haven't read it, read it sometime. It's a, it's a great response to people saying, why are you doing what you're doing? He gives a really good reasons why he's doing what he's doing. And of course, we think about iconic moments like his speech at the March on Washington, or we think about even you know, the, 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 the words he gave right before he died. So he's a great political figure, really. A great political, public, transformative figure who was instrumental in helping our country live up to what its ideals were, or live up to it a little bit better is probably really a truthful way to put it. Because what he did was sort of say to the United States, you say you're land of the free. Well, why don't you act like land of the free rather than sort of land of the free? And because of his work and, his, and the work of others, we are in a different place than we were. So he's a liberator of sorts. Same thing is true for this, as I like to say, obscure to some Dutch Calvinist named Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper was also a liberating kind of figure in the Netherlands. So Abraham Kuyper is someone who became a leader for a group of Christians that he called the Kleinaliden, the little people. And he was their leader, uh, and he, he helped do things like help them to get the vote. But now, one thing about the vote in the Netherlands was you couldn't, be a, 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 you couldn't have a vote if you weren't a landowner or if you didn't have enough land. So part of what he did was he was instrumental in expanding, the, what's called expanding the franchise, so that the more people who couldn't vote were able to vote. And a lot of the people that he was representing were these people that were farmers, uh, people not necessarily with the greatest education, uh, and people who were Orthodox Christians who were kind of marginalized. And he was really sort of like a Moses figure for them. 
He was a great organizer and activist and somebody who really did so many things that, that it's kind of overwhelming to think about. So here's a few of the things that he did and why some people think he's a hero. So he helped found a political party called the Anti-Revolutionary Party. That party put together two newspapers, one called De Herald, the Herald, and one called De Standard, the Standard. He was the editor of both of them, the editor of the weekly paper and the daily paper for decades. He also had a place in government. He helped found what's called the Free University of Amsterdam, the first confessionally Christian university in the Netherlands. And he became prime minister from 1901 to 1905. He wrote a lot, he did a lot, he organized a lot. And he was literally a sort of a genius kind of figure. So he was truly someone who was great and heroic for his people. And for someone like me, if you read the introduction to my book, if you buy that, you'll see me talking about how he gave me language for a faith that engages life. He's a very important figure for me. But our title tonight is Brilliant and Blemished. And when I was asking you about heroes, I noted that there are, I said that people are heroes because of certain things that they do. And sometimes because there are, there are heroes, we grant them sort of a pass, or we assume that maybe they were great in everything. Well, there's a reason why we put blemish by both of them, and you could say this really about any figure. But what about them in particular? So, with Martin Luther King, there are three things uh, I'll, I'll point out. So one, some of you may know about this. So in Martin Luther King's dissertation, I mean, it's, it's widely accepted that there's plagiarism in his dissertation. And some would argue that, uh, he was, that that wasn't the only plagiarism, but that there was other plagiarism that went on. Now, it's important to say this as a qualifying statement. It didn't mean he was stupid. I mean, and of course, there were people who were like dissertation readers whose responsibility was to catch such things, and they didn't. But the fact is that you have the plagiarism. It's a reality. Nobody denies that. All the biographers will admit that. That's one thing. Now, second thing, it might not seem to be that big a deal depending upon what your tradition is, but he was a Baptist. And he was a Baptist who smoked cigarettes and drank alcohol. Now, some of you who are Baptists, now you know. You know, if you're talking, if you are someone that drinks alcohol and smokes cigarettes, people think there's a problem with your holiness. And uh, it's interesting to me, he, he, I will say this I mean, to his credit, he didn't want to be seen smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol because he did care about not just the public image, but particularly he didn't want to be a bad example for kids. Third, now there's, there's debate about the extent of this, but he had certain kinds of extramarital affairs. Now, we don't know whether there's many Depends upon who you read again. There's a lot of debate about that. But there were affairs. There were at least emotional affairs, likely more than emotional affairs. Okay? 
So, okay, plagiarism for a Baptist, you know, something egregious like smoking, and affairs. All right, so that creates some problems in the eyes of people. Abraham Kuyper, a workaholic who had three major nervous breakdowns. Nervous breakdowns to where he could do nothing for like six months. Okay, this, this happened when, in 1860, it happened once, uh, I think in the 1870s, and once in the 1880s. He had to go away like some sort of spa type of circumstance and just refresh himself for months because he'd work himself to the ground. And the thing is, you know, the, the predominant American biographer, uh, Jim Bratt, would say, you know, those were just the major nervous breakdowns. Okay? So he wasn't quite so healthy with doing all those things. He was so in need of control that he could never groom a successor. Whenever somebody was being brought up, when they became you know, a little too competent, he'd push them away. So he couldn't, ha- he couldn't have re- a real successor. So it's, it's as if he had to have control of it. Or, or one way to think about it is to say, you know, he was always talking about God's sovereignty. It's as if, you know, Yes, he believed in God's sovereignty, but he also believed that God sovereignly appointed him to carry out his sovereign will. (laughs) That's kind of the way it was with Kuiper. And then there's this. Very disappointing language about race. I'll just quote one of my favorites, or not favorites. So in one of the books he's most well-known for, Lectures on Calvinism, they delivers at Princeton in 1898. He's making a contrast between evolution and the, the reform doctrine of election. And in, make, and, and in making this contrast, he starts talking about um, you know, what one would prefer at, at certain kinds of uh, plants, animals, and people. So he says this. To put it concretely, if you're a plant, you'd rather be a, mose, a rose than a mushroom. For bird, an eagle rather than owl. Among the higher vertebrates, a lion rather than a hyena. And being man, rich rather than poor, talented rather than dull-minded, of the Aryan race, than Hottentot or Kaffir. Now, if you don't know what Hottentot or Kaffir refers to, think South Africa, okay? People with my pigmentation were darker in South Africa, all right? Uh, in fact, I'll give you another one, actually, uh, you know, since, we're, since we're doing Kuiper's worst hits right now. <laughs> so, he says, beauty doesn't enrich the whole earth. You know, uh, the beautiful, the common, and the hideous exist side by side. You know, he says, uh, a doe is beautiful, a calf is common, a rat is hideous. The same is true with people. The Arab appeals to you by beauty of appearance. The Dutch are common. The Hottentot fills you with loathing. Kind of disappointing. Yeah. Right? So, so you have heroic people 
with feet of clay. Heroic people with all kinds of problems. What do we do about that? Well, so my first question to you is, you've got three minutes to talk about this, and then I'll come back and talk some more. I want you to talk about, at your tables, a hero of yours that disappointed you. Who are they, and what did they do that disappointed you? So take a few minutes to talk about that. Take about 60 more seconds. Time's up as uh, the, the title of the album of one of my favorite bands, Living Color. Great band, Living Color. If you haven't heard any Living Color music, check them out. They're still around. 
So would anybody like to tell me about somebody who disappointed them? A figure. Oh, who's the hero that disappointed you? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not going to ask you about what that disappointment was. Yes. <laughs> Bill Clinton, okay. Yes, that's perfect. That's for reasons that we can probably. Yes. General Petraeus, well, we, right, even today, right? Just the, so giving away secrets to his mistress for, her, for the, the book she wrote about him. Who's that? Okay, what about Mandela? Okay, all right. Anybody else? One more person. Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby, okay. Now, he said, well, never mind. <laughs> he said, and his wife said, right? And she said, she said, that's not the man I know, but we're not going to get into that conversation. One more, okay, yeah? Be okay, because... Okay. Okay. All right. Great. All right. So, we have to deal with the fact that figures can be disappointing to us. So, here's the thing you have to understand about me and Abraham Kuyper. Now, I just told you about Abraham Kuyper and race, but there's a book back there with his face on it and my name under it. Now, why is that book there, and why is there a picture of Abraham Kuyper in my office, and it's not for dart practice? <laughs> right, it's like, you, right? Um, why, why, is that, why is that the case? Kuyper is how I became a critical thinker. How I moved beyond what I call zero-sum thinking. You know, we're in an era right now where, uh, and you particularly see this in politics, uh, where there's such a need for people to have what you call a, a purity of ideology that if you don't have the purity, you know, you can't get elected or, or you, you'll be uh, disregarded. And it kind of operates as a zero-sum kind of thing. Okay, what's your stance on this, 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 and this? And if you dare compromise on anything, we'll never elect you, which basically means Congress is going to get nothing done because you have a bunch of ideologically committed people who say, we're never going to compromise, so you can't pass anything. Because compromise is allegedly heresy. Even though that's how you make policy. So zero-sum thinking can sometimes work that way. I'll never vote for them, or one of them, or that party. I mean, you can pick the thing where people decide, I am all of this and none of this. The problem is, is life's more complicated than that. And what I had to do with Kuiper was deal with what was for me a crisis. Because earlier in Kuiper's book, remember I said he gave me language for how Christians ought to be involved in culture, the theological language for that. Someone who was playing my song, a song I'd been looking for someone to play for years. 
And at last, here was someone who did that. And then I read of the Aryan race, then Hottentot or Kaffir. And I put the book down. Like, what am I going to do? So I had to ask myself, these things about Kuiper you really like, are those ideas connected like this to what he's saying about race? Is his whole project tainted by what he says about race? Everybody had to think about that. My conclusion was, no, that that was not the case. But that, in fact, that his theology actually undermined any kind of racist language. But that he was unable to live up to his theology. He couldn't overcome what I like to call the gravitational pull of his own cultural assumptions. But the fact that he couldn't overcome that doesn't mean that the other things he said weren't good things. So I need to, so I need to admit that those are good things. And a lot of things are good. There are other things, okay, so they're not so great. The point is, is that I can have an admiration for him without having to think he's perfect. I can say I like these ideas and I lament those statements. And that's what we have to do when we're doing critical thinking. We recognize, well, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, oh! I mean, that, that, that's kind of what we have to do in these circumstances. And the fact that we have to think about is this. Whether it's King or Kuiper or anyone else, whoever your big figure is, the day of reckoning is coming. The day when you've been so excited about this person, you're like, oh, if I could meet them if they're alive or if they were dead, I wish they were still alive so I could find a way to meet them. And then the closer you get to them, you get a little too close one day, apparently, because you discover that there was something they said or something they did. And you want to say, please tell me they didn't say it. They said it. Or please tell me they didn't do it, but they did it. And you have to deal with the fact that they're imperfect. The fact is, is that feet of clay are everywhere. There are no perfect people. And we have to figure out how to deal with the imperfections as well as things that might be admirable. And from a Christian point of view, I think one needs to think about this. What is your view of sin? Because if you really believe that sin affects human beings, should you really be surprised that all of a sudden you discover that people do sinful things? It's like, oh, I thought they were perfect. Oh, wait, that's only Jesus. Because there's only one Messiah. Only one person who's perfect. Everybody else, they will disappoint you. Just wait. Keep reading. 
Keep getting closer. Read the biography. It's like, you know, people who love Jonathan Edwards is like, yeah, why don't you think about Jonathan Edwards in slavery for a little bit? Or George Whitfield in slavery. Or Abraham Lincoln. And what did Abraham Lincoln want for these people of African descent originally after they were free anyway? Did he want them to be just good old American citizens like everybody else? Uh, that's not necessarily what he was thinking. And on it goes. Just pick your figure, and you've got to deal with the fact that they do disappointing things. Sin is everywhere. In spite of sin, that doesn't mean that the fact of sinfulness obliterates any possibility of admiring the things people do. This is an important thing to think about. And, you know, I mean, I have ongoing admiration for King and Kuiper. Not because they're messianic. They're not. Not because they're perfect. They're not. But because they did very important things. Made very real contributions. Here's something I'd like you to think about. Think about someone that's disappointed you on the one hand, and, and what you've thought about their disappointment, you're like, yeah, that's really too bad. That's really too bad. But, you know what, I mean, I like all this other stuff. So what you do is, you find a way to, uh, if, it's not, if not excuse what they do wrong, to diminish what they do wrong. Then think about somebody else that you don't like, but that other people like. And what do you do when you find out about the flaws of those people? Do you then say, well, because they're not my people, oh, a plague on their house. (laughs) Why would anybody find anything admirable about that person? You, know, who mentioned, you mentioned Bill Clinton, right? So here's the interesting thing about Bill Clinton, okay? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that he's flawed. Okay? Right? I mean, I know people who've met him, uh, and they say, you know, when you meet Bill Clinton, it's like you are the only person in the room with him. And my, uh, one of my readers in my dissertation knew a lady that met him at a cocktail party. And she said... Great to be around him. I would not want to be alone with him. Is what she said. But here's the thing, okay? Because he just can't, he just cannot get that area of his life together. None of that means the guy's not smart. Doesn't mean the guy's in no politics. You know, I mean, look, and you know, I I never voted for him actually. I mean, but you know, the guy knows a few things. And you can't pretend he doesn't because you don't like his policies or because, you know, he seems to have a problem with the zipper. You know? So, same thing to just be an equal opportunity if you're a fan of Ronald Reagan. Okay? People love Ronald Reagan. 
You would swear they thought that Ronald Reagan was like the most Christian president we ever had, the most Christian president who never went to church. <laughs> right? Did he go to church while he was in office? I'm not saying he's not a Christian, because I, I mean, I have a very good friend, who, I mean, who says, believe me, he is. It's like, I trust him. There are people who love him, and there are people who think he only cared about certain people. People like my relatives said that. A lot. But in spite of them saying that, here's the fact. Whatever you think about Ronald Reagan, there were some things that were very timely about what he did as a president. And you can't say that, well, it was bad that, generally speaking, he kind of restored a certain kind of patriotism and pride in America, et cetera, et cetera. You gotta admit that. You have like anything else about it, perhaps, but you have to admit that. You have to tell that truth. Same thing with King and Kuiper. I think some people, because they don't like Martin Luther King, they go, oh, well, I thought he was a plagiarizing, womanizing, dot, 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 dot. All of which is supposed to somehow mean that the whole civil rights movement is tainted because he had some problems. He had real problems, but he also had real commitments to the pursuit of what was going on with civil rights. And the fact is, is that, and he was successful through much suffering and difficulty, by the way, before his ascent. You know, I mean, the amount of stress that he was under is tremendous. Tremendous. You can't dismiss him. And, what, and those achievements that changed our country because of those problems. You have to acknowledge, say, wow, that's quite an achievement. There's a reason why he's admiral. There's a reason why some people have pictures of him in their homes. Same thing with Kuiper. Here is someone, incredible organizer, incredibly gifted intellectually, theologically, incredibly capable of producing lots of writing, books, articles, etc. But he was a difficult person. He couldn't groom a successor. He couldn't get, you know, he he couldn't bring himself to affirm, you know, the goodness of darker skinned people. But he did a lot of great things. There are two things about both of them I, w- I want to note before uh, Jim and I talk. This is one important thing to remember about King, and then one important thing I want you to remember about Kuiper. And the reason I want to say this one this important thing about King is because I think it gets, it gets uh, obscured. On the, you know on the on the birth, on this holiday etc. The version of Martin Luther King that most people have, I think, or the one that's presented to people, is Martin Luther King, a crusader for truth, justice, and the American way. Here's thing you have to recognize: if Dr. Martin Luther King isn't Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, he's not this crusader for truth, justice, and the American way. There's this thing called the kitchen table experience that he had, 
in the 1950s. He got a phone call basically threatening his life and saying, you ought to leave, you know, we're going to kill you, etc. And he's sitting at a kitchen table by himself, wondering, you know, should I check out? Or should I keep on? And he says that it was as if he heard the voice of God. Now, whether he did audibly or not, I don't know. But he said, essentially, he had the assurance that God said, I am going to be with you as you pursue this. And I am not going to leave you. And that's why he stayed in it, because God was with him. Not because I believe in truth, justice, and the American way. But because God was with him. And then he's saying to America, you say you're for truth and justice, then you should be for truth and justice for all your people. It's an interesting quote from him. He says this, Before I was a civil rights leader, I was a preacher of the gospel. This was my first calling, and it still remains my greatest commitment. You know, actually, all I do in civil rights, I do because I consider it a part of my ministry. I have no other ambitions in life but to achieve excellence in the Christian ministry. I don't plan to run for any political office. I don't plan to do anything but remain a preacher. And what I'm doing in this struggle, along with many others, grows out of my feeling that the preacher must be concerned about the whole man. He said that in 1967. But the fact that he's Reverend Martin Luther King, it's as if that, the, the reverend part just kind of fades out. Oh, Martin Luther King, advocate for justice. No, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. If he doesn't believe this is part of what he's doing as someone who's in Christian ministry, he's not doing it at all. There is no heroic Dr. Martin Luther King if he doesn't believe that God is with him. It's very interesting. Kuiper was a person who wanted to have Christian influence in the Netherlands. You need to understand about in Europe, so you have all these countries that had things like a state church or at least a nationally recognized church. So there, was, there were Christian assumptions, but by the time Kuiper is living, it's, it's becoming much more secularized. Not, not in the sense that people, that, that atheism is dominant or anything like that, but what we would call uh, a, a kind of committed Christianity was kind of more marginalized. You had a more cultural Christianity. But here is what he wanted, wanted for society, and this is very important, because some people hear about the things that he did, and they think, I think Kuiper wanted to have a theocracy where people who were religious ran everything, right? You can't read him and reach that conclusion. But here's a statement he made that helps you to see what he hoped for in the Netherlands and how he hoped for God's grace to set the stage for a better country. In such a country, special grace in the church and among believers exerted so formed an influence on common grace. Common grace is God's generosity to the entire created order in terms of people having t- gifts, talents, and abilities, and God preserving the creation. 
So special grace exerts such a formative influence on common grace that common grace thereby attained its highest development. The adjective Christian therefore says nothing about the spiritual state of the inhabitants of such a country, but only witnesses to the fact that public opinion, the general mindset, the ruling ideas, the moral norms, the laws and customs there in this country, the Netherlands, he hoped, clearly betoken the influence of the Christian faith. So this is attributable to special grace. It is manifested on what he calls the terrain of common grace. In other words, in ordinary civil life. This influence leads to the abolition of slavery in the laws and life of a country to the improved position of women, to the maintenance of public virtue, respect for the Sabbath, compassion for the poor, consistent regard for the ideal over the material, and even in manners, the elevation of all that is human from its sunken state to a higher standpoint. The point is, he wanted a society influenced by Christianity, but he had no illusions that this meant that you're forcing everybody to become Christians. What he meant was that the influence of Christianity basically makes a country the best it can be. That's what he dedicated his life to. And it's interesting to notice, by the way, that he talked about the abolition of slavery in there. He could talk about that, but still not get over the thing about race. Kind of interesting, right? But that's what happens with these flawed people. There are all kinds of people who have great ideals, and then you start having these conversations like, did they just say what I thought they just said? And it's like, but they did say it. They used to have this ideal, but they can't always live up to their ideals. King and Kuiper, brilliant, blemished people. Someone like Kuiper, a person who couldn't transcend his own cultural assumptions. Here's something I ask you to think about. To the extent that someone like Kuiper was blind in some ways to the problems with his views on race, it should prompt us to consider how we may be unwittingly complicit in things that are displeasing to God. I guess it's an important thing to ask ourselves, because we always go, how could anybody do that? I can't believe they did that. We should pause, look in the mirror, and say, are there things that I just assume? That 10 years from now, I'll say to myself, how did I ever assume that? How did I think that that was okay? This happens throughout history. It's an important thing for us to ask ourselves. It's an important thing for us to just sort of keep ourselves in check. And when it comes to our heroes, we need to have tempered expectations, recognizing that they're heroes with clay feet, but not messianic figures. All right, Jim. Thank you. So go ahead and turn to each other and discuss what's the one question you want to text in, and we will take those questions. Go ahead and text all of life to 411-247, and uh, 
hit reply Y to confirm, and then send in your question with the phrase all of life. So the first question that I wanted to go ahead and ask you, Vince, is um, to walk us through the biblical story and how each part of the biblical story gives us a different uh, insight into how to look at this issue mm -hmm. of brilliant and blemished leaders. So we have creation, mm -hmm. fall, redemption, restoration up here. Let's start with creation. How does that, how does what happens in Genesis 1 and 2 give us an angle into how we can view this topic? Well, I think it sets the stage for the potentiality. I mean, if you, you think about creation as sort of this gift where there's the possibilities of good things that can happen, so the gifts, talents, and abilities that people have. Um, I mean, when we talk about somebody being brilliant, usually we're talking about some ability that they have. We go, wow, look, at they're so talented, they're so thoughtful, they're so able to do X, Y, or Z. So, I mean, that comes out of their creativeness. How about the fall? How about Genesis 3? The fall means that all that creativeness can be twisted and misused. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, you know, th this is the kind of thing that happens. Uh, this, is, this is when a, a gift can become a liability. Mm. You know, you, there are things that people can use, but they can also use them for bad ends. What's interesting is I feel like the tension between the creation and fall mm -hmm. is something that we're always off to go one side or the other. Yes. Uh, to just be to completely despair over humanity or to think that we are the greatest thing and we're going to fix right. all the problems. Right. right. Um, and I, I think that's an important tension, believers, non-believers, yes. all yes. of those folks. Yes. Um, talk about redemption. How does the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, help us look at Kuiper, King, and every other leader who's disappointed us differently? Well, well one, uh, as I said, there's only one Messiah, uh, so, so he does live a perfect life. He's perfect, they're imperfect, but uh, in coming, he makes possible our reconciliation to God, and in making that reconciliation to God possible, then you, you, you can have the beginning of the, the, the twisted nature of people's abilities. Uh, it no longer has to be just twisted when people uh, encounter reconciliation with God through Christ. So then these abilities can begin to be put to service in a way that honors God. And how about restoration? How about the end? When, when Jesus returns, he makes all things new. Uh, what is, how does that give us a hope or some sort of perspective on the situation? Well, it, I mean, here's the way to think about it. The, the gifts, talents, and abilities that God gives people, I mean, they, they, they can then reach their full flowering. Hmm. You know, so, so that, or if you want to say, when, when, when things get to the other side, then uh, there's no more of the distortion. There's no more of uh, the, the crookedness. Now, you know, things are straight, things are beautiful, there's no distortion, uh, and, and we see what things can be. I mean, the way I like to think about it, if you, if you go back to creation, you know, creation starts in a garden, it ends in a city. That city is the fulfillment of what's in that garden. So in a similar way, when we think about, you know, creation, I mean, that, that includes us. So, you know, the, those who are redeemed, I mean, we, we're able to be what we could always be as human beings. I mean, th th this is what is, is the hope of uh, the eschaton. So what do you think Martin Luther King Jr. and Abraham Kuyper will talk about in that day? <laughs> uh, uh, I, that's a good speculation there. Uh, so, 
Um, you've, you've hung out well, with well, me for well, a day well, or two. Well, you know yeah, that's yes, all I, I do. I know. I know. I know. Yes. Uh, well, well, one thing I would say, uh, Kuiper would say, now I know uh, about race. Um, so uh, I always say that, you know, now he knows. Uh, but, um, but, but, but I think, you know, they, 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 you know, I think perhaps they, they, they can share the fact that, uh, you know, they were able to use um, God's gifts in spite of their brokenness to, to give gifts to God's world. Yeah, yeah. So cynicism and activism. Mm-hmm. Those seem to be the two polar extremes that we bounce from. We mm-hmm. either tend to say that it's hopeless, there's no politician in the world who ever does anything right, any human who does anything right, and so we just give up on trying to do something in the world. We throw up our hands and go to coffee shops and mm-hmm. listen to sad music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the other hand, there's uh, this utopian activism that if we get the right bracelet, and if we give enough money, and if you, if, you, if you can sign up for the right thing, that we can change the world, that we can fix all the problems. Is there a third way? And what is that third way as followers of Christ? Uh, the third way, uh, speaking from the cynicism side, I would say, cynicism is uh, a fake version of the blues, mm. right? In the blue, with the blues, you know, you tell the truth about how horrible things are and how bad things are and how disappointing they are, but you don't withdraw. You don't retreat, nor do you act like you've got it all figured out, right? Cynicism is a great way for people to really uh, have the posture of a liar, I think. Uh, because, like, oh, I'm so disappointed that now I'm going to act like I figured out everything about everybody. Bad idea. Uh, <laughs> you know, so... Uh, but, but we can we admit that things are disappointing, admit that things are hard, admit that people do disappointing things, but don't disengage, but lament. You know, we can mourn these things, but we don't need to have our mourning become reason for us to be cynical and, and to say, I'm going to go just, you know, sip on a latte in a closet somewhere. Um, so uh, in terms of activism, we have to temper our expectations because none of us are capable of, of being messianic. There's only, again, there's only one Messiah, not us. So uh, we have to have a humility uh, attached to our, our desire to do things, but also a humility that recognizes that uh, even grand ideas can uh, be, you know, can run aground. Um, or that there can be missteps that happen, um, you know, or, or that you might have to just refine what your plan was, so, or maybe chunk one plan and come up with a new one. Um, but that's not a reason to avoid things. It's a reason to say, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. But go to the drawing board, right? Yeah. So, so I think that that's, you know, the, the middle way basically then is a humble patient, um, non-utopian participation uh, in the world. And when it comes to politics, you know, I always say, remember that politics isn't just about national elections, mm-hmm. right? It's like, it's like, do you like your traffic lights to work? Do, 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 do you like uh, all, all of your utilities to, uh, you know, make it to you okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, well, you know, the, the governor's not doing that, you know. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? What if someone wants to be involved with that? Uh, well, I, I was on a panel just about a week ago, actually, where 
Uh, if you actually want to get involved in politics, you can call your lo- whatever your party is, you can call that office and say, I'm interested in volunteering. They will be happy <laughs> to have you participate because most people don't participate. Uh, so, I, so I think that kind of participation, act, that actual political participation is possible. But, I mean, there, 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 I think the question is, what, you know, what, what are you interested in? What are you passionate about? Uh, what do you think you might want to give your time to? You can't give your time to everything. So, you, so discern, make choices, uh, and think about where you want to find some way to serve so that you can address uh, some of the challenges that are in the world. But what if someone said, well, Vince, I would like to do the things that Jesus cares about and go to Bible studies and go do ministries and things like that. Why should I even get involved with politics as a Christian? Uh, I would say, did you, have you read the entire Bible? <laughs> is what That's I a would good say. question. <laughs> uh, because last time I checked, Jesus wasn't asking people to just do Bible studies. Uh, so, uh, I mean, b- b- because, w- you know, when Jesus says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father, but you never, well, what kind of deeds is he talking about? Hmm. Well, it's all manner of things. Hmm. All manner of things, right? And it has to do with what we do interpersonally with people, but it also has to do, you know, with what, with what we do in our jobs, how we do our jobs. Um, it has to do with how we're concerned about, you know, our society. Um, and, 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 you know, one thing that's different from our society than from the time of Jesus we're in a context where you can actually be involved politically. You can really be involved politically in Jesus' day. It was the Roman Empire, right? Uh, we're not in the Roman Empire. We're in the United States of America. Citizens have opportunities. Uh, so those opportunities are available to us. And I think that those are ways of participating in the world. Uh, and the way I think about it is, you know, all the way back to the beginning when God gives this cultural mandate in Genesis 1, you know, it's not as if because Genesis 3 happened that the cultural mandate was vetoed. Hmm. It's harder, hmm. but it remains. Yeah. And that cultural mandate means that, that really humans have always had both op- the opportunity and responsibility to be participating in every area of life, I would say. That's good. That's good. One of the things that we talk about a lot when we talk about this story here is that there are two ways to truncate the gospel. One of them is an armless truncation where you cut off the arms of the gospel, restoration and creation. Mm-hmm. And if, if people were to voluntarily cut off their arms here, they would have a lot of difficult time doing things in their life. Mm-hmm. It would be very difficult, but they could talk a lot. Right. Uh, and, and a lot of times we truncate the gospel and only talk about the fall and redemption. Yeah. And we're, no, we're of no good in, world, in this world, and it's God's world other than proclaiming, which is the gospel, which is absolutely valuable and precious. The other way that we talk about it is, um, is the heartless gospel of cutting out fall mm-hmm. and the reality of sin and the fact that we need to be redeemed by Jesus, rescued by Jesus, and redemption, the life, death, and resurrection, and all that that means, not just him as a good teacher, and the heartless gospel loses life it right. loses and it also loses passion right. uh, and and so that that's some of the way that we try to try to balance things here and i think that some of that is kind of what kuiper uh, oh i think so at. i think yeah. so well, well nothing about kuiper i didn't say is that he wrote a lot of devotionals so hmm. this guy was prime minister i mean he he was writing all kinds of things his bibliography is 228 items 
Wow. So uh, there's a, a lot of things in there, things about politics, thing, devotionals, etc. Yeah. I think we have some uh, questions now. We've given you some time to throw up some questions. The first one is, do you think that there is ever a time that a man's sins are ever, ever completely erase his good deeds? Uh, what I would say is, is that it's certainly possible that a person can do lots of bad things, and those bad things taint or significantly obscure those things, or they, dimin or they diminish them. Um, I mean, if they're a good thing, I mean, I think our duty as Christians, if we're going to really be truth tellers, is to admit what was good and say, man, you know, this story was like 99%, just a travesty. But there was that 1%. Hmm. And be truthful about the 1%. So I think we need to, to, to do that. Um, the, but uh, certainly a person's public reputation can be significantly damaged, and, um, and, and, and that does taint things. Hmm. Um, but, but I think, and particularly if I'm thinking about King when I think about this part, um, his personal failings don't mean that he wasn't committed to a good public cause. Uh, so um, whatever his imperfections, that doesn't mean that the cause or the things that he accomplished themselves mm. are things that, uh, you know, gee, I wish that didn't happen. Mm. Well, there are people who wish it didn't happen, but that's for other reasons. Mm. Yeah. I think what, what a lot of people push back on is um, not that he was committed to, uh, that he wasn't committed to a good public cause, mm -hmm. but the mm -hmm. question is, was he committed to a good public Jesus because of those things? No, I think he was actually. Uh, um, you know, in fact, I, I would pose the question to everyone here. Uh, you know, think about your own life for a moment mm -hmm. and think about what you don't want people to know about you. And if they did know about you, what would that mean for your reputation? I mean, no, that doesn't mean, wow, what a scandalous group of people that we have. I, I, I don't know, cause I, I'm not a mind reader, so you have to worry about it. I don't know what's going on with you, okay? <laughs> but my point is, is that some people, they're just very good at hiding things, you know, or they're able to keep those things out of the public eye. Um, some people in this narcissistic age we're in, they kind of broadcast those things. Um, you know, in, in the case of someone like King, um, I mean, they're real disappointments. But, um, you know, the fact that he was flawed and sinful doesn't mean that he didn't actually have real Christian commitment. I mean, there are lots of people that are legitimate Christians that just had all kinds of problems. You know, people that are fans of, I think, Brennan Manning, I think it is, well, you know, some stories, it's like, wow, you know, like how many times did this guy go on a bender? Mm. You know, like after doing something successful or whatever. Mm. Um, but there are a lot of people who love reading Brendan Manning. Mm. They don't yeah. say, I'm done with reading him. Yeah. Why? Well, because, you know, sometimes he would unplug the phone and nobody could reach him for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, I mean, no, he was, he, 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 he was gifted, but he just couldn't, he just couldn't kick certain things. Yeah. Not to mention Psalms of David. Oh, wow. Uh, well, Abraham. There's all kinds of things about Abraham. David. He yeah. was yeah. pimping out his wife everywhere he went. <laughs> uh, we have a whole, we have a whole nasty Bible full of people who are flawed. You know, um, I hadn't really thought about Abraham, you know, as a pimp until now, but... <laughs> 
That, um, that's that's my new book. That's yeah. Coming all right. Out. Yeah. All right. It's, it's, uh, it's like, did you know he was a pimp? You know, got this 1970s picture of him with like a feather in his cat in his hat. You know. So. <laughs> uh, so, and, and ultimately, at the end of the day, the only one who's erasing anything when it comes to deeds is is Jesus yes, on yeah, that question. Yeah. yeah. Um, at the end of the day, we can either go by the law and it is what it is, or you go by. Uh, grace and it's the deeds of Jesus that erase that so let's erase the question go on to the next one um, next question that is a nice question the glasses aren't working come wow. on um, how can we evaluate the the sinful cultural assumptions that might be invisible what are some that are common for Americans uh, so the first part uh, be around people that aren't just your echo chamber. Uh, so be around people that are different from you. Or, or, just, or just have friends that will tell you the truth. Um, and that's part of it. Uh, you know, uh, ask God to unveil these things. Um, that's part of it. But also, I think, ask yourself about, um, you know, are there things you take for granted just about the way things should be in the world? You know, um, and are, are there ways, for example, that um, you think about some issue and you don't understand why anybody would see it differently from the way that you see it? Um, well, it's a good, it's a great time to ask yourself, why do I see it the way that I see it? And if somebody doesn't see it the way that I do, why do they see it differently from me? Uh, to me, to me I think that, that, that begins, I think, to, to open us up to ways we might be making certain assumptions. I mean, if you talk about like, one thing that's a common for being an American, depending upon uh, you know, how you're brought up, you can, you, can, you can sometimes not tell the difference between what it is to be a Christian and what it is to be a citizen of the United States. Um, and the point isn't that you shouldn't be patriotic, et cetera, et cetera, but the point is that being a patriot is not your first obligation. Because your first obligation is to God, not to the Constitution. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling anyone go burn the Constitution or something, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is when you think about what your obligations are, I mean, I mean if I say your obligation is to God, not the Constitution, and that bothers you, why does that bother you? What do you think I'm saying that makes it bother you if, if I say that, you know? I mean, look, I love being the United States of America, okay? I'm not, I mean, I love the Netherlands as, as well as you know. I mean, but, but, but um, yeah, I'm not planning on moving anywhere. But I also know that no country is the realization of God's kingdom. And that every place is flawed, imperfect, etc. And that's just the way it is. That's the way it goes. Um, I mean, I, I think sometimes we, we might make assumptions uh, depending upon, you know, what side of the aisle you're on. Um, I think we, we, we can make assumptions about how we think uh, people achieve successful success and wealth. Um, and I think that there are ways that, there are lots of different ways that people may make assumptions about how you get there that don't do justice to something bigger. So, so here's an example. Some people think, uh, how, how do you become a success? Just work hard. Really? Okay, I say, well, just work hard, 
Don't ask for any recommendations. Never network. And then tell me how far you're going to get. Okay? Because you know what networking is, right? That's called affirmative action. That's what it is. Right? Because, when you, because you know people, and they know people, and that, 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 those relationships facilitate, you know, hopefully an advantage for you. I'm not saying don't network. I mean, you need to. Right? But if somebody says, I just worked at Sector Sector, it's like, really? You think it's just because you worked? You know, I mean, that, that's a great John Wayne mythology, but it's a mythology. Right? Which doesn't mean don't work. You should work hard. But you also need to recognize that nobody gets anywhere without other people. You know, if you want to have a business, where's your capital coming from? You know? There, there's reasons why people turn to venture capitalists, for example, because they've got money. And they make proposals to venture capitalists, and they hope that they're going to give them some money. Right? And sometimes, sometimes the venture capitalists, you know, there's like deals, et cetera, but they say, you, know, you must do X, Y, and Z. But the point is, is that someone's helping you. Sure. So I think sometimes there's a kind of self-sufficiency that happens. All right, one last thing. There's a heresy called Pelagianism. Okay, what's that? That basically means that humans are basically good, uh, that you only become a sinner by following bad examples, that, 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 that the fall didn't really affect who we are in terms of our nature, um, and that if we just have enough of the good habits, then everything just work out the way it's supposed to be. Uh, it's kind of like a late-night Tony Robbins commercial kind of thing. Think about it that way. Um, I think the United States is very oriented towards this idea that humans are just basically good and not sinful. And sometimes it can be easy to buy into that. Yeah, and that has huge implications for this. Yeah. Next question. See, I saw it change that time. <laughs> if the bottom line of this presentation is tolerance and acceptance, then how does that relate to Christians' views on, on non-Christians? Uh, I didn't know the bottom line was tolerance. Mm. <laughs> I don't think I used that word, actually. No. Uh, but I will say this. The point isn't about tolerance of King and Kuiper. The point is critical engagement of King and Kuiper. That's not tolerance. Tolerance is, I mean, because I don't tolerate the fact that, King, that, that Kuiper had, you know, problems with race and that King, you know, had problems with affairs. I mean, those are bad things. Call them what they are. The point is that just because they made mistakes doesn't mean I discredit everything they did. Or that I don't tell the truth about if they did good things, that they're, they're good things. That's not tolerance. That's critical engagement. Mm. So that's what I'm doing, okay? Um, so it's a kind of acceptance, but it's a critical acceptance. It's really a kind of, you know, acceptance tinged with lament is what it is. Because it's sad that people have these flaws, and, and because a lot of times these flaws, what do they do? They impact other people. You know, I mean, Kuiper was terrible to a lot of people. And he's overbearing, dismissive, you know, did a lot of great things, but it's like, gosh, you, you, you want to say, dude, can you just like shrink your head a little bit? Mm. You know, so, so I have to admit all that. I mean, it's, so those are very, very sad things. But I can also say, wow, look at these things, other things he did. And, and say, those are really good things. But this other stuff, oh. You know, so um, 
Now, when it comes to Christians and non-Christians, here's what I say about anybody who's not your people politically, whatever, politically, religiously, etc. Um, our aim should always be to respect people militantly. In other words, you may not like me, you may despise me, I refuse to despise you. I will respect you, because you are a human being created in God's image, A. B, when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandments are, the, second, the first was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which basically is a positive way of saying the first of the Ten Commandments, which is have no other gods before me. If you love God with everything, you can't have room for other gods. And then so the second is like it loves your neighbors yourself. So basically all the commands about what we do toward other people are expressions of treating other people like we would want ourselves to be treated. And most people, when it comes out, they want people to treat them, they want to be treated with dignity, care, respect. They want people to tell the truth about them, not lie on them, etc. And whether a person's a, a, a non-Christian, whether, they, whether I disagree with them politically, theologically, whatever, you know, my aim is to say, I'm going to respect you and honor you as a person. And even if, you know, we, we wind up with some dissonance, my goal is to say, you know what, I you to sort of step back if there's a moment where it gets kind of tense and say, all right, how would I want someone to treat me in this moment? And I don't think that means harming them. I, I don't want to be harmed. I want to be lied about. I don't want to be disregarded etc. So the point is, is that that's how I want to treat any other human being. I mean, that, 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 that's the goal. I mean, it's not predicated upon me agreeing with them. It's predicated upon the fact that they're a human being, and that God says, you know, you know, uh, you know Paul sums it up, we start, we're sort of quoting Jesus here by saying, you know, I mean, the sum of the law is this, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. It all resolves to that. I mean, and that's basically what we ought to be doing. I mean, that, 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 that's, so, so when it comes to King and Kuiper, it's like, man, guys, that's disappointing. But I'm not going to say you're not human. I'm going to say you're human. I'm disappointed about that, but you're a human being. And I want to affirm that God's created you in his image and gifted you, etc. You know, because every human being, Christian, not Christian, etc., God's given them things, the contributions they can make, etc. I want to honor that. Rather than uh, saying, well, because you're not like my kind of person, you know, uh, how about I throw you in front of a bus or something, right? No. 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 It's like you're a human being who should be treated, honored with dignity and respect. Uh, when you say that, a quote comes to mind. I might butcher it a little bit, but Miroslav Volf, um, he said that when we exclude the other or even your enemy from the community of humans, image bearers of God, mm -hmm. and when you exclude yourself from the community of sinners, then forgiveness flounders. There will mm -hmm. always right. be right. conflict. When right. they stop being human and you stop seeing yourself as a sinner. Right. And, 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 and please understand, by the way, when I'm talking about loving your neighbor as yourself, I did not say it was easy. It's hard. 
right? I wrote, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago uh, after Jerry Sandusky got uh, convicted. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I basically raised the question, so what should we think about Jerry Sandusky? You know Jerry Sandusky? So if you, Penn State, you know, sexual abuse, right, okay. Um, okay, did Jerry Sandusky forfeit his image of God card because of what he did? No, he didn't. Now, it's really hard, especially when people deny that they did anything. Um, but, you know, I, we, we, we have to figure out how you come to someone and you still honor them as a person. Even if you say, there's all this stuff that seems to me to say, wow, bad, 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 bad. And we, call, and we tell the truth about those things but we still honor them as humans. Very, very hard to do. But hard doesn't mean don't do it. So I have two more questions for you. There's no, what, we're we're basically out of questions. Uh, so two questions for you. Okay. One of them's, one of them's hard, the other one's easy for you. You know what, I don't even, uh, well, okay. Yeah, all right. So the first question is, a lot of folks watched the Oscars. Yes. And um, there was a performance by John Legend and Common. And Common, yeah, right. Yeah, the Selma performance. Yeah, right. it's mm -hmm. a great song. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what they do in that song, you know, in, in talking about Selma, it's, it's about the movie Selma, Martin Luther King Jr., they relate that song to what happened in Ferguson and what's happening right. in our yeah. day today. Right, right, Thought we'd mix, stir the pie here. This yeah, is, this sure. is good. Um, what are the similarities and differences between the civil rights movement in the 60s, mm -hmm. what Martin Luther mm -hmm. King Jr. was doing, and mm -hmm. Ferguson and those things today? Uh, the, well, one difference is, is that what the civil rights movement was doing, I mean, you're, I mean, one, you're just trying to get people to vote. Mm. Okay, so that, you, you're trying to get that, you're trying to deal with ways that segregation legally, was, you're still trying to, to, to break those things down. And, and, and there's ways you're trying to uh, facilitate politically uh, the, the country, if you will, dignifying African Americans uh, and giving them the right to be actual citizens, right? Uh, and, and, and trying to uh, put an end to the kinds of things that happened with Jim Crow. The difference with, say, Ferguson, for example, is uh, there are things that happened there that I think in some ways are still in the wake of the things that, that were being addressed back then. Um, I mean, it's not the same in that, you know, what's going on with Mike Brown and, and, and now with this report about Ferguson, um, I mean, that's a question about the nature of policing, that's a question about um, racial bias, um, things that were con obviously concerns there, but Ferguson isn't about whether you get to vote or not. Ferguson's about how we are continuing to try to attend to a whole series of problems that civil rights movement didn't resolve. I mean, here's one thing the civil rights movement didn't resolve. Okay, if you were a poor anything, the civil rights movement didn't really do a whole lot for you. I was watching this uh, interview with Henry Louis Gates, and he was talking about the fact that uh, it's quoting someone else who said. You know, what, you could say that the civil rights was like a success for middle class African Americans and up. Because black poverty hasn't really been addressed since then. I mean, and, and then what happened, you know, attending to housing things, et cetera, that 
enabled people with the, the means and education to move away, uh, which isn't that they necessarily should or shouldn't have moved away, et cetera. That's not the question at this point. But there are people who are left behind. And then you have all kinds of problems, I would say, uh, made more severe by uh, the way that welfare was administrated. I mean, I don't know whose idea it was to reward uh, reward having more children and keeping men out of the house, right? I mean, I mean, that, I think that that's kind of a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know whose idea that was, but um, but you, you had all kinds of cyclic problems that that that, that developed that used to are still uh, reverberating. Um, and I guess there's the fact, here's a way to think about it. Just because you passed a law in 64 and 65 doesn't mean that the problems that are being addressed just disappeared because somebody signed a piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. Think about it this way. If you think about the United States as a person, a person with psychological difficulties for 250 years, and then you change something for 30 years. You think that 30 or 40 or 50 years undoes 250 years of psychological carnage, mm. right? I mean, if I said to any of you, and perhaps some of you, you know, you've had problems, people made your life miserable for decades, and maybe the abuse stopped or whatever, and it's been five years, and likely you still have issues with that. If I tell you to just get over it, Right, you're probably going to think, man, you are one heartless person. Right? Well, that's why we can't just get over when you've got centuries that built a way of operating in the country where you made race this problem. Mm -hmm. Just because you pass some legislation and have half a century mm -hmm. doesn't mean that the momentum that you already built up is completely dissipated by all of that. The effects remain. Much has changed, but much changing doesn't mean that we've arrived. So, so Ferguson points to the fact that we haven't arrived and that there's still lots of complicated things to do. They have to do with individual responsibility. They have to do with the structure of society. It's a very complicated thing. It's not one person's fault or another fault, etc. I mean, there's all kinds of things. All kinds of patterns that, 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 that have to be uh, dealt with. And we have to have patience and deal with uh, that difficulty rather than saying, I wish people would just dot, dot, dot. Well, I mean, it's not as simple as people just doing certain things. Occasionally some things are, but, not, but the big picture is much more complicated. Was that the easy question or was that the hard one? <laughs> Turns out that's going to be the only one because we're out of time. So you'll... What do you think? Was that easy or hard? Uh, so we're going we're gonna to wrap it up tonight. Um, we are going to go ahead and sell this book, The Spirit of Public Theology, in the back there. Um, Sarah, why don't you go ahead and drop this down to $10 so that it can be more accessible to college students and such. Um, the other thing is, if you, if you call any political office and volunteer in any way, shape, or form, even if you just make a phone call, I'm going to give you this book. So um, do that, and uh, would you thank Vincent for uh, spending some time with us tonight? Great to be here. Great to be warm. Yeah. <laughs> we, we really appreciate you, 
and um, as blemished and brilliant people yourself, as image bearers of God and sinners, as you leave that door, uh, know that every square inch of this world belongs to Christ, and we are to engage in that with seriousness. Um, have a good night, everyone.